The frog is a lunar animal, by many accounts. Sir Lowe's Dictionary of Symbols tells us that, quote, there are many legends which tell of a frog on the moon. In the ancient novel True Story, by the Greek satirist Lucian of Samosata, there are men who live on the moon and eat flying frogs. They catch the frogs from out of the air, cooking them and inhaling the smoke, and then somehow wringing liquid out of the smoke to drink. Due to its obvious association with water, the frog has been associated with cleansing, refreshment, and purification. The water deity of the Mayas and Aztecs was a frog. In Huron mythology, the great frog swallowed all the waters of the earth, but was slain by Ioscala, the white one. The frog is associated with deluge myths and is the lord of the waters in both American Indian and Australian Aboriginal folklore. I covered deluges in the first frogs episode. In Alfred Jerry's surrealist novel, The Exploits and Opinions of Dr. Faustroll, which I discussed in my interview with Yerk P., there is a monstrous toad whose mouth is flush with the ocean's surface and who at the end of every day devours the sun and burrows into the earth to emerge at the other pole and shit it out undigested. In Zoroastrianism, the frog is considered evil and it belongs to Ariman, the destructive spirit and adversary of the good god Ahura Mazda. The Revelation of John, the final book of the Bible, tells of three unclean spirits which come like frogs out of the mouths of the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet at the end of days. In the previous episode, we described a ritual crucifixion of a frog by the magician Aleister Crowley, in which the frog, representing Christ, was supposed to go forth upon the earth as a lying spirit, serving Crowley. Quote, and this shall be its reward, to stand beside me and hear the truth that I utter, the falsehood whereof shall deceive men. End quote. Crowley knew his revelations well, and it's likely that his ritual was modeled on the passage about the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet, all of whom Crowley identified with himself. In the preamble to Liber 70, or The Cross of a Frog, he says that it describes, quote, ceremonies proper to obtaining a familiar spirit of a mercurial nature, as described in the Apocalypse of St. John the Divine from a frog or a toad, end quote. In the 1871 Victorian science fiction novel Vril, or The Coming Race, by Edward Bulwer-Lytton, a man travels into the hollow earth, to discover a subterranean race that lives off an invisible energy source called Vril. The men are called the Vrilya, and their ancestors look like frogmen. There's a debate in their society as to whether ordinary frogs descended from them, or whether the men are in fact a degeneration from the frogs. Because of the esoteric themes in another of his novels, Zanoni, it's often suspected that Bulwer-Lytton was 
an occultist or an initiate of some secret society. In fact, the English Rosicrucian Society claimed him to the surprise and dismay of Bulwer-Lytton himself. This society was founded in 1865 and has no demonstrable link to the original Rosicrucian Brotherhood, which in turn has a dubious existence to begin with. Three of the known members of the Societas Rosicruciana in Anglia would go on to found the Order of the Golden Dawn in 1888, which would eventually include one Alistair Crowley as a member. But as for Bulwer-Lytton, there's a lot more evidence for his influence on later occultism than occultism on him. Elena Blavatsky, founder of the esoteric school known as Theosophy, and Rudolf Steiner, who founded the offshoot Anthroposophy, took real energy to be a real thing. It's been claimed that there was a proto-Nazi Vril society in Germany, notably in the book Morning of the Magicians. The source of this claim is probably an article by an emigre German-American rocket engineer and cryptozoologist named Willie Ley in the magazine Astounding Science Fiction after World War II, which was about pseudoscience in Nazi Germany. Whether the Vril Society existed or not, this has become an influential idea in esoteric neo-Nazi circles, ironically perhaps due to the morning of the magician's sensationalist portrait of Nazi occultism, where it is connected to the ideas of the Black Sun, the Hollow Earth, and Vril-powered flying saucers. But we're going to get into Nazi frogs a bit later. Scientifically, there is no difference between a frog and a toad. We tend to call toads those kinds of frogs that are more land-oriented, with dry and warty skin. Symbolically, though, it's different. The toad is the negative or infernal aspect of the frog, or in Jungian terms, its shadow. Sirlo tells us that, quote, the toad is the antithesis of the frog as the wasp is of the bee. There are also certain animals whose mission it is to break up the astral light by a process of absorption peculiar to them. There is something fascinating about their gaze. They are the toad and the basilisk, end quote. It's interesting that he makes the connection between the toad and basilisk, which Crowley also makes in Liber 70, rhyming, quote, He has crucified a toad in the basilisk abode, muttering the runes of verse, mad with many a mocking curse, end quote. The basilisk was supposed by ancient Romans and other Europeans to be a king of the serpents, with many deadly attributes such as killing with its gaze or its breath or the sound of its voice. In his natural history, Pliny the Elder said that it moved not like a snake but upright, and had, quote, a white spot on the head strongly resembling a sort of diadem. It's always depicted with a serpent body, sometimes with wings like a dragon, and sometimes with a bird beak or a head like a rooster which may be why Chaucer calls it a basilicoque in the Canterbury Tales. 
basilisks were sometimes said to be hatched from toad's eggs. They could be killed by smelling a weasel or hearing a rooster crow or seeing itself in a mirror. But the main legacy of the basilisk is of a creature with a mesmerizing or fatal gaze. The toad's legacy may not be so deadly, but they do figure prominently in black magic and mesmerism. The official story told by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints about the origin of their unique scripture, the Book of Mormon, is that it was inscribed on golden plates that were discovered buried underground by the prophet Joseph Smith, the location being revealed to him by an angel named Moroni, who first appeared to him in 1823. An early associate of Smith's named Willard Chase, who claimed to have engaged in money-digging expeditions with him, told a different story, was told a different story by Smith. He said that a spirit appeared to Smith and instructed him to dress in a suit of black clothes and ride a black horse. Quote, demand the book in certain name and after obtaining it, he must go directly away and neither lay it down nor look behind him, end quote. Smith followed the instructions to the letter, except for the last bit, because after retrieving the book, which was hidden inside a stone box, he set it down and turned around to make sure nobody had seen him. But upon turning back, the book was gone, and there was instead, quote, something like a toad, which soon assumed the appearance of a man and struck him on the side of the head, end quote. Because Smith did not follow all of the instructions, he would have to wait a year to retrieve the plates. According to the testimony of many who knew the Smith family in rural New York, his parents, Joseph Smith Sr. and Lucy Mack Smith, set a precedent for such treasure digging activities. They were well known for it, and in an infamous passage from the first draft of her dictated history in 1845, Lucy Mack Smith addressed such charges thus, quote, Let not my reader suppose that because I shall pursue another topic for a season that we stopped our labor and went at trying to win the faculty of abrac, drawing magic circles or soothsaying to the neglect of all kinds of business. We never, during our lives, suffered one important interest to swallow up every other obligation, but whilst we worked with our hands, we endeavored to remember the service and the welfare of our souls." While LDS church members construe this passage as a blanket denial of any magical activities, Excommunicated Mormon historian D. Michael Quinn, in his book Early Mormonism and the Magic World View, interprets her as saying that such pursuits never interfered with any of their other work. She was responding to another common charge of laziness against the family. Furthermore, nobody accused the Smiths of, quote, trying to win the faculty of Abrac. They were accused of treasure-digging ceremonies. 
That's an odd thing to bring up out of nowhere. So what is this faculty of Abrac? Well, this is a ceremonial magic practice. At the time, associated with Freemasonry, but with ancient roots, derived from the magical word abracadabra. In part one of this episode, we discussed Aleister Crowley's slightly altered version of this word, abrahadabra, which he made the magical word of the new aeon of Horus, the age of the child. The word abracadabra had been used as a magic charm, appearing on talismans in the form of a triangle consisting of 11 iterations of the word each with one letter less so that you have abracadabra on top and just a at the bottom at the seventh level and remember that seven is an important magical number it appears as abrac thus the faculty of abrac there's more to say about this but we will wait for later there's also more interesting evidence of the Smith family's use of ceremonial magic, but let's leave off this part for now with this epilogue. In the 1980s, a document circulated that was apparently a letter by Martin Harris, one of the original three witnesses who testified to having seen the gold plates. But in this letter, the creature which appeared to Smith was neither the angel Moroni nor a metamorphosing toad, but a white salamander. Initially, some in the church believed it authentic, and it had been argued that the white salamander of this tale referred not to the common lizard, but to the mythic elemental that was said to live in fire, and that this reference was just a symbolic approximation of the angel Moroni. But this letter turned out to have been the invention of a prolific forger named Mark Hoffman. He was going to sell his document to the church, but when his forgery schemes began to go awry, Hoffman planned to commit three separate murders using pipe bombs. He succeeded with the first two, but the third went off in his own car. Hoffman survived and eventually pleaded guilty to two counts of second-degree murder and one count of fraud. He remains in prison in Utah today. This is the end of the preview for the thrilling conclusion to Frog Gods, Frog Men. For the rest of this episode, please visit patreon.com slash symbolpod. You can get benefits like early access to episodes, exclusive bonus episodes, reading lists for the show, and other bonus content for as little as $3 a month. The Forest of Symbols will continue to explore the deepest symbolic roots of art, literature, philosophy, religion, science, and history, as well as interviews with some of the most interesting artists and thinkers of our time. But we need help from you to make this show the best it can be. Go to patreon.com slash symbolpod and support the show today. Thank you.